0: We do have child care up to three years old. If anybody wants to take advantage of that, we get trained and loving people going back that way to watch the little ones. Um, but if you're not going back there, um, please turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 3. <clears throat> so we're looking at a period of Israel's history after their return from exile in Babylonia uh, and elsewhere. And the theme of this period of history is renewal. So it's the ingathering of God's chosen people back to Jerusalem from all the places where they've been scattered. um, That was as a result of their own unfaithfulness to God. So this theme is all fresh start. It's rebuilding. It's not just a rebuilding of a temple, but also a rebuilding of a people, a renewal of their own lives. And so that's why we're looking at it, because that has principles for us today. When God lays hold of a a people, of a church, um, what is it that he's going to do? How do you know renewal is happening? What, What are the elements of it that God wants to produce in us by his grace and by his spirit? So that's what we're looking at. That's why we're looking at Ezra. So I'm going to read Ezra 3, verses 1 through 7, and then ask for the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid, So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Let's pray. Lord, we ask again for eyes to see, uh, hearts to receive your word. This is an ancient text. It's a environment that we're not familiar with. It needs to be explained. Help us, Lord, to enter into what you were doing there so that we benefit from it and see the principles of how you, by your grace, uh, rebuild the people, renew us, conform us to the image of Christ, and create a community that looks like the one that we're going to participate in heaven. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is an account in the book of Acts about a riot that occurred in the city of Ephesus because of the success of the gospel preaching there. And that story is not without humor. Uh, What happened? is that so many people were putting their faith in Jesus Christ that the idol-making business was starting to dry up. Nobody wanted to buy little statues of Artemis anymore, their, their local deity that they worshipped. And so the tradesmen uh, were seeing their business dry up, and so they got angry about it. And so then they start accumulating other tradesmen and saying, you know, this is really bad, we're all going to go out of business. And they started to stir up this... Uh, this this image that you know what our whole foundation of our civilization is about to perish uh, nobody's going to worship our idol anymore and so they get this crowd riled up and they all end up down at this amphitheater down in the middle of the city they're shouting all sorts of things and and here's the description this is where the humor comes in about this gathering now one cried out now some cried out one thing some another for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. One of the pastor's college classes after me adopted that verse as their motto uh, to explain what, how, why they were such a problem for their teachers. Um, it's humorous. But that raises a good question for the church. Do we know why we have come together? What is the reason we assemble here Sunday after Sunday? Is it because we sense that this is the right thing to do or it's the habitual thing to do? Uh, Is it because we want to see our family members? Is it because we're looking for friendship or maybe a spouse? Is it because we want to be around people who are like us or who share a common outlook on life, or a common ethnicity, or who who share the same political view. Why have we come together as a church? Or a better question is, what draws people together when our hearts are being renewed by an experience of God's grace? Well, the answer in this passage is, is to worship God. That's what brings us together, worship. The renewed community that God is building is a community that worships God first and foremost. It's a community that becomes a foretaste of the life of heaven. And the Lord calls us to go all in on that community and to be full participants. That's what this passage teaches us this morning. So a little background would be helpful uh, to support that. We know from previous chapters that Cyrus, king of Persia, made a decree that the people of Israel could go back to Jerusalem out of Babylonia. That's where they had been carried away into captivity many years prior. But they didn't, he didn't let them go just to relocate, just so they can go back to their homeland. He sent them with a mission, namely rebuild the temple that had once been there the house of the Lord, the place of worship. And Cyrus even funded it. Verse 7 says that he gave them a grant. So like a college grant, you get a grant so that you can take college classes. That's what it's for. You don't spend it on pizza. You spend it on your your college career, right? They got a grant to build the temple. We're going to supply what you need to build this thing, the place of worship. So they get their freedom, they get their grant money, and about 50,000 of them, according to chapter 2, make the journey from Babylon over to Jerusalem. And now in chapter 3, they're there. Verse 1 says, the children of Israel were in the towns. They weren't living in Jerusalem itself because Nebuchadnezzar destroyed that. That was ruins. Wild animals lived there. Weeds were growing up everywhere. That wasn't a place that you could just move into. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. So they live in the towns right around it. That's where they've moved into. They're scattered here and there. But then a day comes. First day of the seven month. it says. The Jewish calendar, Tishri is what that month is called. It's approximately September, October for us. It's in this seventh, seventh month that it says, in verse 1, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. What were they gathering to do on day one of the seventh month? It was to worship God. The very first thing that happens in verse 2 is they build an altar. And that very day they began offering sacrifices on that altar to God. They started engaging in corporate acts of worship. They came together from the towns to worship around this altar. Now, we're going to say a lot more about the altar and the sacrifices, but let's stop here and make an observation. When God's grace gets a hold of people, when he stirs their hearts and begins drawing them back to himself, the result is a community that gathers as one man to worship him. One man, as one man, that means one in purpose. We've traveled all this way to build the temple, to build the house of the Lord, to worship our God there, starting with the altar. One man, as one man. It means one in identity. They're described here as the children of Israel. Whatever tribal jealousies or tensions existed in the different tribes of Israel that are represented, that was all dropped. They came together not as we're Benjamin, we're Levi, we're Judah, and so forth. They came together as the children of Israel, the inheritors of the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's where we all stand together, the inheritors of these promises with the same God. So that's their identity as they come together as one man. So in short, when God's grace renews a people, it creates a community that leans in together to worship God and be invested in His agenda. Rivalries and jealousies lose their strength. Competition for who's the greatest is irrelevant. Social status Ethnic backgrounds and any other factor that divides people and keeps them in their tribal groups cease to be a factor. And what emerges is a community that is genuinely in agreement about the one important thing in this world, which is to worship the God who created us, to give Him our devotion. That community today is the church that Jesus, God's own son, is building. One person at a time who puts their faith in him as savior. Jesus prayed for it to happen in John 17. He said, I ask for those who will believe in me, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus prayed that those who believe in him would all be one, that they would be as one man, we might say, united in identity and in purpose, just as God the Son and God the Father and God the Spirit are united in that way. A church that leans in together to worship God and be about His agenda is a reflection of God's own nature. And when it happens, it's the community of peace and agreement and holiness and goodness that everybody really wants to have anyway, right? Don't we all want to live in that kind of environment? But nobody can create it except God. No scientist, no politician, no educator, no CEO has ever been able to create that community. It's only the creation of God's grace poured out into people who believe in Christ and are changed by it. It's a taste of heaven. It's a taste of the multitude of the redeemed in the book of Revelation who all together are saying the same thing. They're saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. There's no disagreement in heaven. (laughs) They're not singing different songs. Just one song, that song. God's creating a worshiping community that has unity joy, satisfaction. And it comes when He stirs our hearts together to worship as one man. Now, let's be honest. No church on earth looks entirely like what I just described. There are a lot of things that divide Christians so that we don't always gather as one man. Personal grievances... Politics, prejudices, sometimes those things can become the most important thing, the true passion of our heart. And if we bring those different passions into our gatherings, then it disrupts the gathering. Or maybe we don't even gather because of those things. And that's a shame, but that's the bad fruit of sin. Sin in the world, sin in our hearts. That isn't the way God wants it to be but it doesn't mean we can't grow in this. We can. In fact, the expectation of believers is that we do grow in this. That's why belief in Christ is called being born again. With birth, there's growth. That's the natural progression. Yeah, we start out in a very big mess, we get less messy as we go. We start to drop all those prejudices, all those other things that are competing with our allegiance to Christ, and we start to lean in together about the one main important thing, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Growth happens because God has given us His Spirit, and the Spirit empowers this change in us, makes us realize we have one identity as the children of God, adopted by God, through Christ. We have one purpose, which is to declare his glory and declare his salvation in the world. And so he's making that happen. We will grow. We had a wonderful taste of that a few weeks ago. We had a ministry fair. A lot of you were there. Our fun squad and our deacons conceived of this whole thing and pulled it off. It was amazing. Um, But part of it, it was a carnival. I mean, it was a full-blown real deal thing. I just had no idea we could do that. And, uh, but, but it had a serious um, purpose, and that was to sign up for ministries. So, you know, in the past, I don't know how we did it, but we were always like short people. Well, we need some more people. So we had this ministry fair, and we had sign-ups at all these different booths, and every single ministry got filled up. I mean, every single one. I saw a thumbs up over there. I mean, like, boom, it just happened. I mean, like, everybody said, I'll, I'll do something. I mean, that is an amazing thing. That's what it looks like to to lean in together, to be about God's agenda together and not have competing agendas. Uh, That is God's work in us, and I think we should be encouraged. I think that's a great trajectory that we are on here. It's 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 so encouraging from that ministry fair. When God brings renewal, the result is we gather to worship Him as one man. Now, let's go to the rest of the passage and see what it adds to that. I've been saying that they were gathered to worship God. And that's because the very first thing that they did was they built the altar. Verses 2 and 3 say, They built the altar of the God of Israel, and they set the altar in its place. So you can imagine what happened. Here's Jerusalem is laying in ruins, and they go looking around all the rubble. And they go, where was Solomon's temple? Where where was the foundation of that thing? So they find that, and then they find the place where the altar was, which would have been outside the temple in the courtyard. So they're clearing stuff, and they find this is where it was. This is the place where the altar was for all the sacrifices back in the day. And then they assemble some materials, and they build an altar right there on the exact spot. Now, why was that so important that they set up an altar? Why start with that? You might think it was just a practical reason. Because after all, you know that they were sent there to build the temple. Well, it's going to take a while to build that. And also, there's not a lot of trees that you can get lumber out of around Jerusalem. They grow way far away. So in verse 7, it says they sent for... Some wood to come from Lebanon. It's far away, so they don't have the they don't have the, the materials yet to actually build the temple. You might say, "Well, it's just practical. An altar that's small. You know, you can make that out of rocks and stuff that's laying around." And oftentimes, that's what it was made out of in the Old Testament. So it's maybe practical. That was the first thing that they could do. But actually, no, it wasn't just practical. It was symbolic. There was a much bigger reason to make the altar first. It's because the altar was the meeting place of God with His people. Way back before Solomon's temple was built, when the Lord gave instructions to build this tabernacle in the wilderness, He instructed that there be an altar. And of that altar, He said in Exodus twenty-nine forty-three, There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will meet them at the altar. The altar was the earthly and the visible meeting point of sinful man with holy God. Because it was on that altar that sacrifices would be made. Lambs and goats and bulls, brought by people seeking forgiveness for their sin, wanting to be right with God, wanting communion with God, to be reconciled with Him. That would happen as they would bring those sacrifices, and they would know there is restoration here. There is communion with God here through sacrifice. That's what the sacrificial system was about at its core. But as we learn in the book of Hebrews, animal sacrifices were never sufficient in themselves to atone for sin. They all pointed forward to the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Hebrews ten twelve says, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. For all time, one sacrifice. The effective altar, The true meeting place of holy God with sinful man is the cross of Christ. His death, bearing the guilt and the penalty for our sins that reconciles us to God, ushers us into all the blessings of communion with Him, relationship with our Creator, the Giver of life, Israel met with God through an earthly altar, but we meet with God through Jesus Christ, our sacrifice for sins. We can worship God only because of Christ. So what does that worship look like, that they gathered together and that we gather together to do? What happens in our souls when grace is renewing us as one man? Is it just certain rituals that we do Is it just songs that we sing? Is it just going to church meetings? What's the kind of worship that's consistent with God renewing us? Well, we can find three aspects of it in the text. They all have to do with the altar. The first has to do with what was offered on that altar, the second has to do with the urgency with which they built it, the third has to do with the festival that they were able to celebrate because of the altar. And we can collect those three things under three words, devotion, trust, and gratitude. So let me talk through those things. First, devotion. This is an aspect of worship. One thing that really stands out in the passage is that after they built the altar, we read no less than six times what kind of sacrifices people offered on it. They are called burnt offerings. Over and over again, we hear this term, burnt offerings. They offered burnt offerings as written in the law of Moses. Burnt offerings to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. Daily burnt offerings. Regular burnt offerings. At the new moon, at the appointed feasts. All these burnt offerings. What is a burnt offering? Somebody once joked that Thanksgiving, it's when you burn the turkey. Burn burnt offering sometimes referred to sacrifices that atone for sin, but that is not mainly what they were for. They were offerings freely given by a worshiper as a statement of total devotion to God. They were entirely burnt up. Nothing was set aside to be eaten by the priests like some of them. The whole animal was consumed by fire which is why sometimes it's called a whole burnt offering. It was entirely for the Lord, it was voluntary, and it symbolized one's dedication to the will of God. In other words, burnt offerings were for people whose sins were already forgiven, but who wanted to express their dedication to the Lord over and over again. They were a sacrifice more in the sense of being costly than atoning. We speak today about making a sacrifice of time or money or or effort. When we talk about sacrifice that way, we're tapping into the idea of a burnt offering. It was costly. You were just giving it away to the Lord 100%. So starting that day, day one, they built the altar. These are the kind of offerings that they made on it. They were sacrifices that expressed their devotion to God. And that's the aspect of worship that grows in our hearts as God renews us by grace. It isn't about making up for our sins. It's about loving God. After after Paul explained in Romans, the first 11 chapters, this full-blown explanation of the gospel, 11 chapters of it. After that, he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That isn't asking us to atone for our sins over and over and over and over again. It's doing things because we're dedicated to him. We have been saved through belief in Jesus Christ, our sacrifice. Therefore, let us give burnt offerings back. Let's give him our lives. Let's give him everything that we do and think and say, it's for you, Lord. I give it all to you. That's what Paul's saying. That's the response to the gospel. That's what it creates in our hearts. We do it just because we're devoted, not because we're trying to make up for the bad things we do. I can name some examples of what this devotion looks like, this living sacrifice. I think about single moms who are raising kids to love the Lord even though their own life has so much pain in it and reasons to complain to God. But they still want their kids to know the Lord. That's a living sacrifice. Or a man who has a full-time job, and he spends a big chunk of the rest of his time serving the church in some kind of ministry. He doesn't have to do it. He's got another job, but he's still going to be there. He's going to serve. That's a living sacrifice. It's a missionary who leaves comforts of the United States to go across the world, and live in a place that's foreign and where it's going to be hard to learn language and all of that. That is a living sacrifice. That is devotion. We have examples of all of those right here, right here in this room, because God is renewing us. Devotion is the first aspect of worship. That's what we do as one man. That's what we lean in together and say, that's what we're about, him him. But trust is another one. Trust. Verse 3, this is a part of worship. They set the altar in its place. Why? For fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. Okay, so there was some urgency to do this. It was somehow related to, we're afraid of people around us. We got to build an altar. Okay, so what's all the logic behind that? Well, this is what this is going along with what David said he did when he was afraid in Psalm 56, 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? So something is going around in the peoples around them that's making them afraid, and they're like... When I'm afraid, I will trust in God. I'm going to build an altar and I'm going to commune with God and I'm going to connect with Him because He's the only one that can take away my fear and make me safe. So to get an idea of what's going on, why were they afraid, think about the situation. So the land that they left had been sitting empty for like 70 years, right? So what happens to a place where nobody's living, where all the, you know, where the owners have left, so to speak, what happens? People move in, right? We call them squatters now, like people who unlawfully occupy somebody else's territory or property, right? Well, that happened. Other people moved in while they were gone, and some of those people were Assyrians, which we learn about in chapter 4 coming up. Assyria was a nation that conquered the northern kingdom of Israel many years before, and now they take advantage of this open, un- unoccupied land, and they're moving in down there. So they've got them in their, in their houses, so to speak, living on their land, and there's tension. Because there's history with the Assyrians and other people. There's history of conflict. You were the guys who you know, like conquered us. Um, but now we live right among you. And also there's tension because, like, you're in my house. <laughs> they're afraid. What's going to happen? How is this going to pan out? There's 50,000 of us. There's how many of them? I don't know. That's what they're afraid of. What, what's going to happen with these people? And as we see later, there's going to be trouble. What do they do with that fear? They build an altar. Because only God can keep us safe. We need Him. We need communion with God. We need to receive strength from Him, comfort from Him, perspective. We need to remember the promises. We need to remember why we're here. And it's all centered around God who has brought us here. So they aren't going to do what they've done in their history, where they would go out and hire other people. to come in, let's go to Egypt and get their army and bring them in. We're not going to do that anymore. Uh, we're not going to try and use their gods and worship the Baals and try to like pacify them. We're not going to go that route either. No, this time we're going to do it right. This time we're going to trust in God and say, what can mortal man do to me? There's trust. Worship involves trust in God. And that chases away our fears. We can do the same thing. God invites us to trust Him when we're afraid. And we can. Because Christ was not only crucified, but He was raised from the dead and is seated on the throne of authority and power over this world. He is in command. The world lies in the power of the evil one. That is true. That's why bad stuff happens. But above the evil one is the one who is working all things, even the scary things, together for the good of those who love him. Guys, he's in command. Jesus is so in control of all things that even the scary things play into his infinitely wise and loving plans for his people. So we can stop obsessing over the state of the world or the state of our lives. We don't need to choose denial and act like nothing is wrong, nor do we need to choose bravado and try and rely on our own strength to change things. Instead, we choose to live as if Jesus is in command, because He is. And that chases away our fear. That kind of trust is the renewal that God brings in people who know His grace, and that's part of worship. But just remember this, the context of the passage is doing this in community, doing this together. They gathered as one man to do this. It's often difficult to not be afraid when you are by yourself with your fearful thoughts. Because even when you read about God's promises and about the reign of Christ and so forth, there's always a voice in your head that often has the last word, the voice of unbelief, the voice voice of self-reliance, That drowns out all these other truths. When we're by ourselves, that voice often has the last word. But when we're in the body of believers, they are not all in the same funk that you are in. (laughs) Some of them have a clear head. Some of them have real faith right in that moment that, that you're, you're needing, and you need to be around them and have them help you. Yeah, that's right, that's right. God is in control. Jesus is real. Salvation is here. Uh, thank you. you know, we get together, and that's how we help each other, to not be afraid. But it's all gathered around the promises of God and salvation in Christ. One more aspect of worship in the passage one more way that the renewed community worships as one man is gratitude. Gratitude for God's provision. Verse 4 says, They kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and they offered the daily, offerings, daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. Now, what is the Feast of Booths? <clears throat> that sounds strange to our modern ears. I mean, that sounds like You go to Comic-Con or whatever, and they got all these booths there where they're selling stuff, or State Fair, you know, where you can win a big stuffed teddy bear. Uh, At least that's what I think of when I think of a booth. Um, What is this feast? Well, it was a week-long celebration that began on the 15th of the 7th month. So they built the altar on day one of the 7th month. Now it's two weeks later, and here comes this annual feast that's on the calendar called the Feast of Booths. And what it was, was a time to remember and be grateful for God's provision. The time of the year was fall, so at the end of the agricultural year when all the harvest had been gathered in, so it was a week that was dedicated to thanking God for the food, for His provision throughout that year. But more than that, it was a remembrance of how God provided for Israel in the wilderness when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. The booths were these temporary shelters that they would make and live in for a week. To remember, at one time, we were sojourners. We were not in our homeland. We came out of slavery, but then we wandered for 40 years in the desert until we finally made it to the promised land. But during that 40 years... God provided for us. So we're going to surround ourselves with the remembrance that God is faithful, that God has kept us, God has provided for us. That's what the Festival of Booths is about. And it was on the calendar because they say we're going to remember this. God said, remember this. How appropriate it was for them to keep this feast after coming out of Babylon into Jerusalem. It was like a second exodus. This time not out of Egypt, but out of Babylon. Still a big long journey. This time from the east. But now we're back home. Now we're in Jerusalem and God has provided. Look at it. We're here. We got a grant from the king to build the temple. Everything's going the way it should now. Thank you, Lord. You're doing it again. You're providing again. You're faithful to your promises. That's what they celebrate. That's the first Thing they celebrate when they get into Jerusalem and they have this altar. Because they have to have the altar because every day there's burnt offerings in order to celebrate this feast. God has the same intention for our gatherings, which is that we also remember his faithfulness and we express gratitude to him. People renewed by grace gather as one man to give thanks to God. Because we go through wilderness wanderings too, right? Our life is one long wilderness wandering. We're not in our true home either. Our true home is with Christ in heaven. Meanwhile, we're in exile in this world. We're still travelers, but God is faithful here. We have reasons to be thankful for his provision and his help day by day, and especially for his provision of Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. And so we sing songs about that. We did that today. We always have a choice in what we're going to let our minds dwell on, don't we? We can focus on all the bad stuff that has happened or is happening around us. We can focus on what we don't have. Or we can choose to remember God's goodness to us. We can call to mind real concrete things that he has done out of his mercy and grace. We can remember his forgiveness, we can remember his promises, we can remember where we're going. Pessimism is the choice to not believe God's promises and goodness. Somebody else said that and I like I got to write that down. <laughs> Cuz that's where I go too often. It's a choice to not believe God's promises and his goodness. Gratitude, on the other hand, is the choice to believe that God is good, and God is good to us, and he is. So we sing, we give thanks, we do it as one man, and that's our worship. That's what God is doing in our hearts as he's renewing us. So what's the overall message of the passage? It's that through Christ, God is building a community that's the closest thing to heaven on earth that we can do in this life, We meet as one man to worship the Lord. We don't make it about some other agenda because nothing else is as important as that. Nothing else gives us life. Nothing else gives us a genuine hope that's unfailing. It's all about God and His grace to us through Jesus. That's what brings us together. And our worship involves devotion to the Lord. Day by day, following Him in whatever He leads and and whatever He commands. And He delivers us from our fears. And he gives us courage as we trust in him and we remember his goodness and we practice gratitude. And we do all of that through the cross because that is how we meet with God without being consumed. We meet because Jesus has made the way for us by by dealing with our sin. And so we go all in on that. We go all in on the church. We gather from our towns, so to speak, as one man, Sunday by Sunday, year by year. That's what renewal looks like. And may the Lord give us more and more of it on every Sunday, every discipleship group, every other kind of context that we have here. May we taste more and more of the renewal and of the community that is like heaven on earth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we're experiencing that community right now. Yes, of course, we can think of things that are wrong, things that could be better. Of course we can. It's a fallen world, and we're fallen people. But your Holy Spirit is regenerating. Your your Spirit is among us. Your promises are with us. You are with us. And so, Lord, help us to continue to press in and to stay on this trajectory, which is towards more and more of you and more and more joy in you we ask it in jesus name amen stand and sing in response